Macy's, MTV, Vice, Pandora, Eventbrite, Pinterest. They all use our product. Probably none of them know that we're 10 people. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Welcome to today's episode. We have a special guest. We have Matt Munson, who is the co-founder and CEO of 2020, which provides some of the best looking authentic stock photos and royalty free images anywhere. Matt, how's it going? Great, Eric. Excited to be here. Thank you for the kind introduction. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do exactly? As you said, I'm uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of 2020. We are a 10-person startup based in, here in Los Angeles, and we provide a photography marketplace. Uh, we source real-world authentic stock photography that companies like Google, Uber, Birchbox, and a lot of leading design and advertising agencies use as a preferred alternative to some of the traditional stock photo providers like Shutterstock or Getty. And we source from a global community of about 300,000 photographers that are capturing real-world content out in life, primarily on mobile, and adding content via our app. Great. And why did you decide to start a stock uh, photo company? You know, in such a when you have you know big players like Shutterstock in the place. What what was the impetus? Well, the inception story is a long one. To be frank, it wasn't our original business model. We we actually started way back when as an education company, and we spent about six months building products there, didn't find any traction, observed the early rapid growth of Instagram and really the proliferation of mobile and mobile photography. And we were looking at business models where we could leverage a, a, a large, fast-growing trend where we could build viral growth into the product and also where we could drive monetization quickly because, frankly, we were running out of cash. And so we did some early testing on an idea that allowed people to sign up via Instagram and sell their photos to their friends and followers as canvas art prints, which kind of took off overnight as a product called InstaCanvas. That's where we started. And we built that product for about two years uh, before dipping our toe in the water of uh, digital licensing. And this this is about two years ago now. Quickly realized we had built this massive photo catalog. We're now at about 50 million Im- images. So a similar, although we're fairly early stage, we're similar size to someone like Shutterstock or iStock and had built a catalog because of our incredible contributor base of really beautiful, um, powerful, authentic imagery the kind of content that we're used to seeing somewhere like Instagram, people that were traditional buyers of stock photography were really looking for a different alternative. So they were pretty fed up and frustrated with the traditional players. They thought the content was kind of shitty and staged and stocky. And these are the words that we heard. And we did a little early market testing with actually allowing these um, big brands and startups and small businesses to license our content and found a huge appetite for something that really stood 
for a, a departure from traditional stock photography and actually provided vibrant, authentic content. So we found the market to be really receptive to a, a very different approach to, to content. Forgive me for being naive, but how do you get all these people to agree to, to let you use their, their photos? It's been a really interesting case in uh, viral acquisition. So we've never advertised for a single photographer. Like I said, we're, we're at 300,000 photographers in over 120 countries. Um, we've built the largest image catalog of its kind globally. So it's pretty unheard of to have an early stage company with such a massive catalog. And all the acquisition has been done through viral sharing. So in essence, uh, we've got a we've got a three person growth team here that specializes in um, kind of traditional growth stuff, understanding sharing funnels, viral acquisition, looking at optimizing um, user flows in and out of the system. And we, in essence, give our photographers ways to share out achievements that they have inside of our system uh, to their follower base. Particularly early on, we were able to bring on some really dominant mobile photographers, people that had massive social followings across Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. We're able to build a community of really excited, influential people that also wanted to spread the word. And that's been enough to keep us growing really quickly ever since. So we continue to scale really aggressively on the photographer side. It's all done through viral sharing across social. Got it. So they're sharing, but let's say I'm, I'm a big influencer. I have a ton of images. Uh, wouldn't I want to ask for some kind of compensation? Like, how does that work? So we provide a revenue share on all photos sold. We, we pay $2 per photo license to every photographer, uh, which is about eight times the market standard. So Shutterstock pays about 35 cents per photo licensed. And what we've seen working with some of these big companies that are looking for an alternative to traditional players, there's a willingness to pay more because the content is very unique. We're the only place to get it. It's it's fresh, authentic. It stands apart from their experience in these big providers and also provides a lot of time savings because their creative teams and their digital marketers aren't spending hours and hours each week looking for photos that don't suck or that don't look so stocky. They can just come to us and they're all ready to go. And so we're able to charge a premium. So we earn about five times more on a per license basis than someone like Shutterstock. And we're able to pass that through to our photographers and pay $2 per photo that's used. Awesome. And as a as a customer of 2020, I can vouch for that. Uh, they're basically Shutterstock or big stock photo, but better. It, it just makes life a lot easier. So, um, you know, when you when you come on something like what you're doing or you know, use like a like an like an app like Canva. And you you push the two together. It makes things. Um, you don't need to have like a designer wait on a designer all the time, and it just makes things a lot faster. In terms of revenues and number of customers today, what does it look like for you guys? So we are just under a thousand subscribers on the system, and so everything's subscription based, and we've got pretty incredible reach across a lot of the who's who of Fortune 1000 startups and creative and ad agencies, people like Apple, Snapchat, Google, a lot of the leading design and advertising agencies in the country are, are subscribers on the system, as well as a lot of kind of the who's who of tech startups. From a revenue standpoint, we are at about 170,000 in MRR right now. So just under a $2 million run rate. And that is about 10x in the last year. So it's been, um, and we've shared a lot of this story publicly, it's been, it's, been a, it's been a crazy year from a growth perspective. The company itself is about four years old now. 
but we've only been in the market, this digital licensing market, for about two years. We signed our first customer about two years, I think two years ago this month. And this time last year, I think we had about th- uh, probably 30 or 40 customers. So we're at about 1,000 customers now. This time last year, we were doing 15 or 16K in MRR. And we're at about 170 now. So we've seen about a 10x increase in revenue this this second year that we've been in the market. Well, congratulations on your growth. Thanks. It's been it's been crazy and hard and exciting and painful and terrifying, you know, all at the same time, like most start most most startup journeys and most of the stuff that people don't talk about. But but yeah, uh, tongue in cheek, you know, we're killing it. <laughs> Well, we're going we're gonna to chat more about that in a second because the blog post is the whole reason, you know, I reached out to you in the first place. You guys are doing, you know, the, the, the growth, you know, the typical kind of growth stuff. And I know um, my company, we're also helping you guys with some paid acquisition at the moment. What's the most effective thing that's been working for you guys in terms of customer acquisition today? I'll go kind of through the whole funnel. On the front end, seen some great returns from paid advertising. Facebook has done fairly well for us. Google, a lot of the traditional stuff, Twitter ads. So we've done okay there. SEO has started to show some interesting traction for us. We're a lot earlier there than than we would like to be. Um, it is a pretty competitive space, particularly in our market. Um, but we're starting to kind of crack ways to leverage the size of our contributor base, the size of the catalog, and the amount of traffic that we see in order to to start to accelerate that. So that's we started to see um, some efficacy there. Um, content marketing is another one that is early but shows a lot of promise. It's kind of a personal passion of mine. I think we've kind of started to find our own voice in the content that we create, which was a challenge for us because we didn't want to be out there just kind of doing webinars on how to build your Instagram and Twitter following count. Like I totally get it. And that's, you know, it's probably smart to do that stuff. And, um, but there's so many people doing it and it just didn't feel like us. And so we've started to obviously do a lot more content production around the the real human experience behind building a company and a product. And uh, the interest there has been awesome. So it, it's it's really spoken to that idea of, of creating content and products that are kind of true to your heart and who you are. And that's been really powerful for us. This one's a little more boring, but cold email, strangely, has always been a... Um, a big driver for us. It was when we were when when, when we were growing more through inside sales, and uh, was really effective there. And it continues to be an interesting place to play, which is kind of weird. A lot of people, I think, don't know that spam is illegal for business to consumer, but B two B, I mean, they call it cold email. I guess it's you know it's 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 uh it's not spam per se, but it's uh unrequested email. But what we've been able to do, there's a lot of, we found some creative ways to actually get really targeted so that we know for a fact that we're reaching out to people that have a core need for um, authentic real world uh, photography. When you say creative, and, uh, what does that mean exactly? Can you give me an, exa- an example of that? Yeah. You need to remind me, even though I just said it, I can yeah. remember. So you, you said creative. you guys are doing, uh, you guys are figuring out some creative ways to send out cold emails. <laughs> um, creative. So the challenge with emailing is you need a list, right? And there, there's a lot of places to buy bad lists. There aren't a lot of places to buy good lists. And there's a lot of bad data out there. And there's there's not a, there's a, there's strangely not a lot of knowledge, even in the startup community, for how to cleanse that data. And um, our growth team's done some pretty interesting things there to make direct cold email something that is far less spammy and far more effective. 
And that's allowed us, I mean, we do it off our own domain. Our scores there are great. It's made it an effective channel for us. So that's a lot, but you know, like anything, we saw early signal, it took a lot of experimentation, stuff, a lot of stuff broke early on and we had to iterate on. How, how do you make it less spammy though? Is there like an example template? Yeah, I mean, there are some best practices for sure. And um, the type of content that we use, frankly, our growth team would probably be better positioned to share some of those tips and tricks than I am. But it's really come down to making sure that we're reaching out to the right people and uh, not just kind of blasting blindly. And uh, we've been able to, I think, get pretty smart about that over time. So that that's that's the top of the funnel. And then, um, you know, once once we've got a, a lead in the system, we and I, you keep hinting that we'll talk about this, but a big part of our experience in the last year, we started growing early on off inside sales. And we basically were leveraging marketing to drive sales leads and then using humans to do the initial outreach, the traditional SDR to AE kind of specialized sales team with account managers on the back end. And we started there, and then uh, in August of this year, really out of necessity, we we moved. We started testing a, a move to a self service approach, and uh, today everything is driven entirely through self service in the system. So we leverage a lot of these marketing channels in order to drive awareness. Um, we see a, um, about um, well a decent amount of our conversion come in. Through, through kind of first-time visitors that are coming in through uh, paid and organic channels. And then we also have a, a pretty robust um, email effort that we've used to kind of provide education and outreach to people that have shown interest but not yet converted. And so one thing that we've found a need to do is to become pretty proficient emailers when it comes to campaign and um, kind of follow-up emails as we move to the self-service system. Got it. Okay. So I do want to talk about that now. I mean, you know, the blog post that you penned here uh, says, it says uh, how, it's basically how you burn $10 million so the audience doesn't have to. So (laughs) let's let's talk about that. I mean, let's go into more detail around the inside sales teams. You know, you have a line here where it talks about how you had to reduce staff, but revenue is growing twice as fast. So I guess I'll let you take it away there. Yeah, let's do it. I'm trying to think how to talk about how to talk about it without kind of just repeating what's in the blog post. Um, no, I think many people probably haven't checked it out here. So maybe the key takeaways, yeah. whatever comes to mind, it's cool. Hey everyone, it's Eric here. I just wanted to call out a very powerful marketing tool that we've been using for the past couple of years. It's called Hrefs, and it basically allows us to see what kind of links we have coming to our site, how our keyword rankings are doing, and over time, what our link velocity rate looks like. Also, we can look at our competitors too, see how well they're doing. We can also use their keyword difficulty tool to see how many links are required to get to the top 10 for a very specific keyword. There's a host of other features as well, such as their content explorer, which shows you different content ideas that you can come up with. And it's just by far one of the best SEO tools that we've seen to date. So if you want to get access to this, just go to growtheverywhere.com slash hrefs. That is spelled A as in apple, H-R-E-F. S as in sugar. So it's growtheverywhere.com slash hrefs, and you can go in and get access. Let me give you the high level first, and then we can kind of drive in wherever you see is most interesting. Um, but at a macro level, so if you if we rewind to um, to three uh, two and a half years ago, we were eight people. We were seed staged. We had built out this photographer community and this large image catalog. We had a handful of customers that 
we had where, where we had kind of tested out this idea of digital licensing and we'd seen some interest and, and that's kind of where we were we were running out of money um we didn't have the cash on hand to even think about building a proper stock photo service and so we went out and tried to raise some venture capital in order to support what really was this kind of pivot of the company from the consumer to consumer business to the b2b licensing service and we're surprised to find at that time, so this is early to mid-2014, surprised to find a, a very strong appetite in the venture market for supporting um, our market and this kind of business. And found ourselves in a, a pretty frothy situation where we raised, we raised an $8 million Series A um, on a uh, pretty substantial valuation, about a uh, 38 or 40 million post. We we had zero revenue to speak of on this on this business. We had we had a you know a million or so revenue on, on the legacy business, but we would ultimately shut that down. So I won't even count that. You know we we were months away from even thinking about building a stock photo service. So raised this money. We're eight people. It took us the latter half of 2014 to build really the piping and the ability to, you know, the, the e-commerce piece and the, the, all the infrastructure to support the launch of the service. Uh, and then we went to market in February of 2015 with our first kind of public launch of the licensing service, uh, which was a big undertaking. I mean, this may not be obvious to listeners who haven't spent much time around stock photography, but Shutterstock is a $2.5 billion publicly traded company thousands of employees, uh, offices around the world. They've got probably a 20 to 30 person team focusing on their kind of search algorithm alone. And uh, here we are <laughs> at the time, you know, 8, 12, 15 people and building a service of a similar size. So they, they at the time, I think, had 40 million images. We had 40 million images. We had all the same search discovery infrastructure challenges that they did. And we're building it from scratch. So it was a big undertaking. And we went to market in February of 2014 and it took us a few months to figure out who our early customers were going to be, what acquisition channels would work to drive awareness and how the heck we were going to close deals in a in a predictable basis. But we started to figure it out. So we or we figured it out one way. And the way that we figured out was matching advertising and some of the marketing channels I've talked about already with the inside sales team. We found that stock photography, it tends to be a service that people have pain points around and they want a solution. It can take some kind of follow-up and reminders to get them to test and convert over to a new solution. It's not necessarily the number one fire in their inbox in a given day. And so, so Inside Sales showed some interesting early efficacy, started to understand how to drive leads. We started to figure out a predictable cadence for following up and doing those initial qualifying calls, how to hire and train SDRs and AEs, and really building that engine out. And we launched in February 2014. By July, we had our first four salespeople, two SDRs, two AEs. We had our two AEs closing 30 to 40K a month in bookings, which allowed them to be really nicely profitable. And it made the whole engine kind of nicely profitable. And from there, and this is what we talk about a lot in that post that you mentioned, um, the Medium post, you know, at the time, we're probably 20 people. We're sitting on this big valuation. We're, we're burning, um, you know, starting to burn more capital as we've built the team out a little bit. And we're feeling quite a bit of pressure to, um, to scale the business. And, and I share this in the post, but 
a lot of that, I think, was internal pressure that I brought into it as a founder and CEO that I, I see a lot in, in peer founders and CEOs as well. And um, we, we had this, this urgency around scaling, and we had something that showed some initial signal around this, this marketing inside sales stack, and we started to, to build it out. I'm going to pause for a minute because I think I'm, I feel like I've been talking a lot. And no, 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 it's, it's, but, it's keep going. I'm, uh, I'm literally staring at this we, blog post right now and your cash flow, this, this cash flow graph right here, it plummets to negative 600K. And, that, and that's a year later. So to give you the high level bullets, we found this early signal around um, May, June of 2015, started to, to, to really invest in building out that team. So by the by the end of the year, we, the sales team had grown to probably, uh, I want to say, 20. So we had gone from four to 20 in six months, prepping for a, an attempt at a Series B financing round in January. And we had incredible numbers. I mean, from that July through the end of the year and through the first quarter of this past year of 2016, we were growing 20 to 30 percent month over month from a revenue perspective, we were able to to bring in and scale our sales team. Uh, I mean, mind you, like we had, we were doing all this from scratch. So we were we had, we had at the front end studied everything we could find on how to scale SaaS businesses and how to scale SaaS teams and how to build an efficient infrastructure. And it was working. We got January of last year, we did uh, 140K in new booking, something I don't know off the top of my head, something like that. It was something like 120, 140, 160, January, February, March. And the thing just kept growing. Um, our sales team was three to three, about three to four X profitable. So we were we were growing the sales team like crazy, but returning cash to the business. Um, and we went out in January um, to attempt to raise additional capital feeling pretty good. We were you know, we were sitting on a lofty valuation. Um, and we knew that could be an issue. The markets had started to turn in, in Q4 of 2015 and valuations were, were, were lower. But we had, you know, incredible growth numbers. We had incredible um, kind of close rates and payback numbers. Two things that we didn't see coming totally happened. One was the financial markets obviously fell apart in Q1 of last year. Um, I think the drop in venture capital deals between Q4 of 2015 and Q1 of 2016 dropped something like 90%, 95%. So we got a ton of interest. We had firms flying down from SF and nobody was writing checks. So that happened. And then just as it became clear in February, March that nobody was going to give us any money, in April, the entire sales engine fell apart. It wasn't immediately clear what went wrong, but we went from booking 180 or something like that in, in March to booking like 40K in April while adding another probably eight or 10 people to the team. So the wheels very seriously fell off. We were in the midst of, you know, we had we had shifted our plan to saying, okay, we're not going to be able to raise outside capital this year. Let's get the company profitable. That's going to mean continuing to scaling the sales to scale the sales team even more aggressively. We had shifted the plan from let's get the company size to 60 people with 30 salespeople to now we're going to go to 80 people with 50 salespeople. And just as we kind of put that yeah in hindsight quasi crazy plan in place, all the close rates fell apart. And that uh, and this stuff's all public in the Medium post, but. The uh, the cash burn, as you mentioned, you know, talk about nightmare of a of an operating team. The cash burn went from something like 200k in 
March to like 600K in April and May. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden your runway is disappearing before your eyes and uh, I'm not sleeping. So that's where we landed uh, April, May of last year. Why do you think the sales engine fell apart? Like, why did the close rates drop so much? Why did everything just get destroyed all of a sudden? I don't think there's ever a totally black and white answer to these things. There are some things that are clear. So one is, as we were going through this rapid growth, we made two very substantial mistakes. We had seen promise in four or five different marketing channels in the six months prior. But in order to support the really rapid growth plan with a limited kind of marketing and development team, we took a bet on going down to only one primary acquisition channel and that channel broke. And this is kind of growth 101, but also kind of like these are things that you know, you're going 100 miles an hour, you're trying to finance, you don't have time to like stop and rebuild. These are trade-offs I think that are made in startups all the time and we made it and it was a bad one. So one was when that one channel broke, all of a sudden the leads dried up and we didn't have, you know, we had a bunch of data on other channels in the wings, but nothing that was ready to be kind of teed up the next week. So that hit sales morale really hard and company morale. Um, But that I would say is recoverable. It took us probably six or eight weeks to to repair that channel and also spin up a couple others as we learned from that mistake. Uh, but that was a big one. And then a second big one was um, we deeply underinvested in sales leadership and processes. So I don't want to take anything away from our sales team or the or the people that led it. Like we had some incredible people. I would argue one of the better sales organizations out there as far as people on the phones. We had brought on a sales director at one point who was based on the East Coast and having the location split really didn't work. So we let her, we, we parted ways with her. Um, we promoted up our best closer as kind of an interim solution to lead the team as we were, cause we were right in the middle of going through fundraising and this crazy scaling. He was great. He had a lot of strengths, but just hadn't, you know, there's a lot of the job he hadn't done before. And that left some significant gaps in how we we're thinking about the processes. And then we were scaling on, I think some tools that, were great early on, but needed more work in order to scale, which means, you know, we kind of, you kind of set yourself up for this perfect storm where when one thing goes wrong, all of a sudden there's a domino effect. And I think we saw that kind of a domino effect. And all of a sudden you, I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty open about the mistakes now because they're real and they happened, but also like, I mean, we're a smart team. So like we, you know, we're, we're pretty thoughtful about these things. It's just, it's easy to miss these things when you're, when, when the, the pressure is there to go fast, things are working you're, you know, like all startups, you're in an environment of limited resources, limited time. There's a big lesson there. Like, even though we were thoughtful about it, we knew some of these risks. We probably could have slowed down earlier and addressed them. And we did not. And that, that I think was our, our biggest mistake was just this kind of overall focus on speed and urgency. There's a reason I think in hindsight, why you don't see a lot of companies scale faster than 10x a year or build sales teams. You don't see a lot of sales teams go from uh, 10 to 50 in a year, even when the company's working. And usually the ones that do, one way or another, they turn into um, <laughs> into tough stories. So uh, we certainly saw some of that and um, ended up in a position in uh, June, June, July. We hadn't been able to turn our burn around 
our plan to get the company profitable driven through that existing inside sales structure was showing really significant cracks. We knew that we weren't going to have an easy time raising additional outside capital, so it felt very much like, although we had this kind of really interesting product market fit, great revenue growth, great customer base, we're really at risk of losing the entire business. Yeah, and just for everyone to know, I mean, we're going to drop in the show notes, you're going to get the LinkedIn to Medium post. I definitely recommend reading it in its entirety because uh, then you get a whole, you know, all the graphs, all the other stuff that's in there. It's going to give you more insight for sure. I, I don't think like an interview can do it, um, you know, it's justice. How long did you spend on that post, by the way? Uh, strangely, not very long. Uh, I mean, we had just lived it. And so I kind of just put my headphones on and, and, uh, and wrote down the entire year. And I don't even know if I knew when I started writing it, whether I was just journaling for my own sanity or we were actually going to kind of share it out. Certainly didn't think more than a couple hundred people would read it. In the end, there's, I think we're at, uh, I don't know, 10 or 20,000 reads now. So it's been, it's been both really gratifying to, I think, have, I mean, the feedback's been amazing. It's been gratifying to have other people hopefully, you know, learn from some of our mistakes and find some inspiration and normalization in the um, in, in the struggles that we all face building stuff, even when we look like we're killing it from the outside. But also it's been a little terrifying. It's been our, our first foray into really opening up some of the company's story and my own personal foray into sharing some of my own experiences and struggles more transparently. And, uh, you know, you don't, don't experience, you don't expect in advance that, uh, Everyone that you know and everyone you don't know is gonna gonna read it the first time. So it's been it's been it's been an emotionally interesting journey. No, this is why we do this. You know, it's it's good to you know pull out these lessons so other people can can sidestep them. I know I know uh, you know Micah from your team also put together a post. I think it went live this week too. That we'll also put in the show notes. Uh, Micah from 2020 um, around um, the growth lessons learned too. So we'll definitely put that in there. And then what I'm hearing, I mean, from from this interview so far, you know, one, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And two, don't, you know, you, you don't need to just uh, grow for the sake of growing all the time because the wheels can fall off, right? Those are the, kind of the two key things that I'm hearing um, in addition to all the mini lessons too. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, for us, the learn, there's been a huge learning experience the last six months as we've really re-engineered the way that we work and the way that we approach scaling the company. Um, and we've we've just come to think about it very differently. And I've come to believe that the things that create risk in companies are not the thing. I mean, I'm a first time venture founder. I've started a couple of companies, but nothing like this where you've got venture investors, you've got large capital, um, you've got a big market with interesting product market fit. I mean, these are all new experiences for me and, and for much of our team. I think what I would say as I look back and as I look forward is that I've come to believe that the real risks in a business are not the ones that most people talk about. It's not that you're not going to work fast enough or ship enough or grow revenue fast enough all the time. Um, And this is, I think, why you hear this stuff, you hear things talked about like really deeply investing in culture and really deeply um, exploring how to create a sustainable environment for your team. You hear experienced repeat founders talk about kind of being always prepared for the downturns, whether it's a macro financial downturn, which we've seen, or whether it's a shift in your own market or your acquisition strategies, which we've also seen. 
these are things that um, don't get talked about a lot, but you do hear the repeat experienced kind of gray-haired founders talk about them. And I totally get it. I, I at least I'd like I'd like to think I totally get it now, um, with a lot of humility, like because we made all those mistakes, um, and you know, thank God that we have a, a a very resilient team and an incredibly supportive group of investors, and also a a great kind of position of leadership in our in a market that's very forgiving and also very where there's a, a tremendous need. And so the market's kind of hung with us as we've gone through some of these learning curves. But yeah, I think the things that people think are the risks or think are most important just aren't. We've totally changed it up. So we, we've become very kind of very team and culture centric at a very different level. So starting to think about how do we build a place that people want to work for the next five to 10 years instead of um, a place where we get as much done as possible in the next 30 days, which I think is talked about a lot, but rarely done. Um, we've also started to think about how do we build a ultra scalable revenue engine, right? Like forget raising shit tons of capital and hiring hundreds of people. Like maybe we'll do that, but that's not really the point, right? All of that, anything that's done to provide resources to a business really is done just to create a profit generating engine and a value generating engine, right? Profit to shareholders and, and value to, to customers and, and to employees, that question does not come first in most venture-backed startups today, but it very much comes first now here. And so now we are, we're 10 people that serve a thousand amazing customers. Macy's, MTV, Vice, Pandora, Eventbrite, Pinterest, they all use our product. Probably none of them know that we're 10 people. Um, <laughs> we are, we're 10 people, we've been in the market two years, and we're doing 200K in, in revenue per head today. And that's you know, good, that's, yeah. That's probably 4x where we were six months ago. Well, from a headcount perspective, it's like 30x. But but these are metrics. I mean, our you know our revenue per engineer is I don't even uh, 800k or something. Like people don't talk about these metrics, but they're like these are metrics that actually make businesses work. Right. Um, and we've we've uh, we've slowed down a lot. And it's funny. It's ironic because even our our legal company name is Fast Labs, <laughs> and you can tell like all the way back into our founding DNA the emphasis that we put on speed. But we've uh, we've actually talked about even changing the name to Slow Labs as a kind of uh, tip of the hat to the learning curve. But we've just talked about how do we actually slow down and build you know a question of like how how do we take one we've got one person one human now that. Uh, in essence, provides all of our human support to both sides uh, of our marketplace. We do that with hundreds of thousands of, of photographers and thousands of, of, of subscribers. Thinking about how to do that at scale without throwing humans at the problem so that we're able to build a much more efficient business and also build for the future is it just takes longer and, and is a more interesting challenge. So We've we've come to take a very different approach. We talk about this a lot in the in the in the medium post, but uh, you know, hope I'm I believe and hope that we've internalized a lot of these lessons from the last year of our own experience and our own experience being first time kind of venture operators. Uh, but I think these are lessons that are the reason we shared they wrote the post. I mean, I think these are lessons that um, a lot of people. Well, one, I think I think it's, I think these are experiences we're all having in different ways. The pressure, the loneliness, the fear, the failure, nobody's killing it and nobody's succeeding overnight. And uh, we're all going through like such incredible hardship and nobody talks about it. That's one reason we wrote it. And the other reason is I think that 
these are lessons that are just really broadly applicable and should be talked about more because the way that we're building companies in the kind of venture backed world, there's a lot to improve on that will lead to both more sustainable companies, healthier operating teams, better investor returns. And uh, I think there's a lot to be talked about there as well. All right. So what's one must read book you'd recommend to the audience? Just one. Can I recommend two? Go for it. (laughs) Uh, I read two books over the break that uh, just have completely normalized my entrepreneurial experience for this for 2017 in totally different ways. One was Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's book about the founding of Nike. This like, you know, incredible success story that defines what it is to build a brand and a global entity. And man, that company should have died like 800 times. So really enjoyed that. And the second is uh, Sapiens, which is a story about the entire kind of evolution of our species. And that has just normalized my experience of uh, what it is to be human and and uh, kind of given some really broad perspective on the, <laughs> the problems and challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis as uh, 21st century uh, American capitalists. So I, I found that I found reading those two books back to back to be uh, a really profound way to start 2017. Love it. All right. So Matt, what's the best way for people to find you online? I mean, we're going to leave that blog post in the show notes. Uh, the other one that Micah wrote, we're going to put that in the show notes too, but where else can people find you? Great. I'm on Twitter at Matt Munz, M-A-T-T-M-U-N-S. All right. Perfect. Matt, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for being so vulnerable. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.